Hey friends, welcome to the Jesus Collective Podcast. My name's Matt. We're so glad you're tracking with us. Jesus Collective is a new relational network of churches and leaders with a vision to unite, amplify, and equip this Jesus-centered movement that God is raising up all over the place. During this pilot season, we're experimenting with different ways to build relationships with people in this movement, to put language to what Jesus-centered means, and to have meaningful and honest equipping conversations about the issues and opportunities facing our churches in this increasingly post-Christian context we find ourselves in. So, this podcast is one of those tools. You might find a number of different types of conversation formats shared here, and we hope you find it meaningful and engaging. You can learn more about us, join our mailing list, find information about upcoming online and in-person events, all that good stuff, at our microsite at JesusCollective.com, or you can find us on social media. And hey, we love hearing feedback and ideas and just meeting new Jesus-y people, so you can always reach out by email at connect at JesusCollective.com. We'd love to hear from you. All right, let's get on with the podcast. Hello, folks. Welcome to our online interactive podcast. My name is Matt. I am privileged to give leadership to Jesus Collective with a great team uh, that includes a growing number of people speaking into this network. If you're new to Jesus Collective, then we're a relational network of churches and leaders that really share in common a passion to unite and amplify and equip this Jesus-centered movement that God is raising up. Those are some of the words that we're starting to rally around as we put purpose to this new burgeoning network. Um, if you're familiar with us, then we're glad to have you back. There's people online with us enjoying this experience in an interactive, relational way, and there's people who are listening to this after the fact via podcast. Either way, welcome. You're totally welcome here, and we're glad you're part of this experience. So you've landed within that broader vision I just summarized in a few words at our online interactive podcast experience. So this is one of the streams of activity that we have created during this pilot season as a new network where we're testing and learning and seeing what adds kingdom value and brings people together. These are really chances for us to put to practice this idea of Jesus-centric leadership development, but to do that in a way that's relational and interactive. And we're really privileged to be engaging with key thought leaders in this movement along the way. Um, So these are recorded, like I said, you can access them after if if you're online today and want to go back and listen in or review any of the chat. So today we're thrilled to have one of our friends, Ken Shigematsu, with us from 10th Church in Vancouver. Uh, We're going to get to that in a moment and give Ken a proper introduction, but he's going to be unpacking some great things around discipleship with us today. Um, A couple things just before we get to that. We like to keep this brief, but also use this as a forum just to keep people updated on the progress of Jesus Collective as things are moving pretty quickly. Then we'll dive right into the main content. Um, Something that we really want to be just unapologetically promoting because we're really excited about it is our unite 2020 event that's coming in may and look we have absolutely nothing against church conferences we love them we go to them we learn from them but really just for the sake of clarity that's not really exactly what this is this is meant to be a relational gathering for people we've been meeting in our jesus collective journey from all over the place primarily in north america but we may have a few people from across the pond there even as well And we really want to focus on rallying around what we mean by this Jesus-centered DNA we're defining and celebrating and putting definition to that and asking the question of, with that in hand, what does unity look like through the kingdom and for us as a network, especially in the polarizing and divisive times we live in, both within the kingdom, unfortunately, but also within the broader world. So we want to lay that groundwork and then spend two days taking a really collaborative involved, engaged, interactive approach, rolling up our sleeves and looking at how that applies to key issues that all of us are facing in our leadership journey and in our church's lives. 
So things like LGBTQ, things like diversity and inclusion, things like peace and politics. Um, these are just some of the things we're talking about specifically engaging in in that setting in May. Um, and we want to do that collaboratively, but with the infusion of thought leadership and experience from some world-class leaders. And don't, don't trust me using that label as marketing speak. You judge for yourself, but we're just like so grateful for who is going to be participating with us. Ken Shigematsu, who's here today, uh, is going to be there. We're really excited about that. Um, Bruxy Cavey will be there. Greg Boyd will be there. Daniel Strickland, um, Ephraim Smith, Tara Beth Leach. That's a, um, just a look at some of the, the team of people who have uh, joyfully agreed to help infuse thought leadership and be part of our experience. But it's really about peer collaboration with other leaders and churches that are there at that event. So it's happening at the Meeting House just outside Toronto on May 7th and 8th. Um, and we'd love for you to consider coming out. We're going to also be spending some time unpacking the launch of Jesus Collective, celebrating that together and giving people ways to engage with Jesus Collective beyond the pilot, sharing more information about what partnership and relationship with Jesus Collective could look like on an ongoing basis. So there's really a cool practical element to it in terms of next steps as well. So consider that. Ask us if you have any questions. We're real people. We love to chat. Give us a holler if you want to learn more, but you can find out more uh, through our website at jesuscollective.com. There's a link to the Unite 2020 event page there. Uh, and as a segue, that's the other thing we just want to mention right off the top here is a lot of you have been journeying with us through this pilot. We appreciate both your patience as well as your input. We've discerned a lot through the spirit by way of this community speaking into what this could be as a network and what our dreams are. And we just want to reiterate that at this point, we're trying to start turning that corner and lay a path in place for people who really do want to engage with Jesus Collective on a longer ongoing basis. And we might call that partnership. And so we're actually now inviting people to reach out to us. If you think, yeah, we've been learning a bit about this network where we're sensing um, an affiliation and an affinity for what Jesus Collective wants to be all about. We'd love to just even ask the question or learn more about what partnership could look like going forward. What could a relationship outside of just touch and go experiences look like with Jesus Collective? So if we don't get to you first, make sure you contact us if you're even interested in just learning about that conversation because it's something we're putting in place right now in hopes that by September of this year, we can actually begin operating as a network in a more um, ongoing viable kind of a way outside of this pilot status that we're in now. Okay, so hopefully that's helpful for you. I realized you're all at different phases in your understanding of who we are and where we're at, but uh, that's just some information that lets you know where we're headed in the coming months. Okay, so typically we like to use a spot here before our main speaker um, just to engage someone who we've met and hear their story. We want to prioritize getting to know each other and being a storytelling community and really unpacking what does Jesus-centricity mean through the ministries and the leadership lives of people that we're journeying with. Today, because it's an interesting time in our season of uh, piloting, I'm going to just spend that time talking with our friend John, who many of you know, and who will be co-leading our interview with Ken later today. We just finished, this is really exciting for us, one of our key streams of activity is what we're calling our online learning collectives. And we just finished our first pilot version of that right before Christmas. We thought it'd be worthwhile just unpacking that a little bit for you today uh, because we've got another one coming up in April and we'd love people to know a little bit more about what we're learning through this pilot experience. So, John, welcome. Good to be here. I'm yeah, not right. usually the one being interviewed, so... That's right. She's on the other foot. You don't That's know what right. I'm going to ask, so get no, ready because I'm going to oh, surprise you a little bit here. Yeah. John and I work really closely together. I'm really grateful to work with John. I could go on and wax eloquently forever, but we have better things to do. So, 
I'll, so John, I'll give you 30 minutes to stop the wax yeah, and the right. eloquent. Yeah. <laughs> You'd love that, wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. So let's dive right in. What is an online learning collective? Like, let's just start with the basics. And why are we doing these? How does it fit in with our purpose as Jesus Collective? Yeah. So you've said, uh, we've said many times as we talk about Jesus Collective, there's three parts to Jesus Collective. Um, one of the major pieces is this idea of equipping, um, equipping hungry leaders for future ready ministry. So the online learning collective that we started in the fall, we're going to do another one in, in April is a six week long, uh, learning experience we call it a sprint style because it's like a dive right in learning experience where we hit the ground running and we dive headlong into a, like a relevant ministry topic or a theological issue of our time. So who's it for? Hungry leaders who want to invest in their own growth and development. Because if, if Jesus Collective is representative of what we think is a growing movement and, and churches that are wanting to grow, not just numerically, but in depth and in impact and in reach, usually growing churches and impactful churches and impactful movements are led by growing impactful leaders. And so we want to stoke the fire within our leaders who are in this network. And we, we think that an online learning collective is one way, not the only way, but is one way that we can do that. So we get together with other, other like-minded leaders to chew on some meaty, challenging things that we, um, process together over a six-week period and hopefully we walk away more spiritually alive uh, we walk away better equipped for the challenges of ministry in a post-christian culture and we walk away more intellectually acute and theologically um, yeah theologically deep uh, as a way to have just been equipped for the road ahead great yeah and you're right this is one of those places where we become hopefully more than a network that's just about thinking good things or believing, believing good things, but actually equipping ourselves to be stronger Jesus-centered leaders and making our churches stronger and making more disciples. So I love that you focused in on that. Um, so we had one uh, in the fall, our first one, our first shot at this. What did we learn from that? You were giving point leadership to that. What were people saying? Who came out of that? And what did we take away from that first pilot experience? Yeah. Yeah, it was interesting. So we, we brought together 11 leaders. So just as a sample of the kind of people who were a part of it, we had a, uh, a regional like, leader for Youth for Christ from Vancouver, Ken's neighborhood. We had uh, home church, people leading home, a home church in South Carolina. We had uh, an established church that was in revitalization of like 200 in Oklahoma we had a church of 100 that was a church plant in Ohio. We had a church of 900 that was a church plant in, in Washington State. And even a church, uh, rep, a leader, one of the top leaders of a larger church, like a multi-site church of 10,000 people in Texas. So it was a, it was a range of leaders that gathered. Um, and there was um, more, more than that. That's a sampling. And really what we learned was... Um, People are hungry to be with other like-minded leaders talking about the things that matter to them. So we're in the internet learning age. There's podcasts and books and articles and blogs. And it's, there's so much of it, like a deluge. You can go find a learning masterclass kind of thing on anything that you want. So that's not unique. 
What is unique is being together with other like-minded uh, leaders who are coming together uh, to sharpen each other and the things that matter to them. So, you know, third way, centered set, prioritizing peacemaking, making Jesus central to everything, how we read the Bible. Jesus is our lens. This is, this is a Jesus-looking God. And that, that understanding is infused then into everything that we do. So our topic in, in the fall was on pastoring and leading churches in a post-Christian culture. But we were doing that with these core assumptions that are center, central to our growing movement. And as we think about coming up in the spring, what we found was they're saying, um, we want to we do theology, we want to do practical how-to with others who think like I do, because many are maybe theologically alone. Many are like actually isolated in their ministry roles. And so being together seems to be what was very impactful while chewing on some meaty stuff together. That's very relevant for ministry um, in the 21st century. So that seemed to be the biggest impact. Um, yeah, we're going to put some information out that has some testimonials of what people have said of how it impacted them from the last one. So people can read that when we send that out. Yeah. And I, I mean, I stayed close and read the feedback and was engaging with some of the participants and just appreciating the relational context, but also the quality of the tuition, right? Like just to make a practical point, we've invested in um, bringing someone on board who is working closely with one of the universities in the States that's got an Anabaptist focus. So really curating high quality content and the syllabus for these and trying to put some professional investment into this so that it's done well. And I was just really pleased with the feedback from people that seemed to signal that they appreciated that and no yeah. doubt part of your leadership too. So that's great. So real quick, we want to, we want to dive into Ken, just give us a really quick preview. What's the next one coming up and how can people get info on that, John? Yeah. So you can get info in the chat if you're present with us uh, or if you're listening um, you can email me at john, J-O-N dot hand, H-A-N-D, at jesuscollective.com. And then within a week from now, we'll have resources available online that you can link to under our, probably our events page on the website. But the, uh, the next collective is focusing on the center of our faith, on, on Jesus. And so we are going to look at... Um, we're calling it Exploring a Jesus-Centered Life in a Polarized World. So, exploring together a Jesus-Centered Life in a Polarized World. We're going to look at six aspects of Jesus' vision uh, of how and how it relates to us personally, how it relates to the cultural institutions that we find ourselves in today, the church, government, politics, and the military, and then how it relates to how we engage culture. Uh, we're gonna. We have some amazing thought leaders that we'll be learning from, like today, live, ongoing. So we're gonna have uh, time with Bruxy. We're gonna have time with uh, Danielle Strickland, with Brad Jersak, and just got confirmation that Greg Boyd's gonna be a part of it. So these are some amazing kind of heavyweight thought leaders that we'll be able to learn from live and in very interactive ways through the course of that experience. Perfect. Yeah. Thanks, John. And just for everybody's benefit, hey, here's a transparent comment. We, we debate, you know, how much do we want to spend on these podcasts, just sharing updates and talking to people about what we're up to. We'd probably prefer not to do that, but we feel like 
we get a lot of questions about where we're at and what we're up to, so it's just useful spending some time unpacking things. But give us feedback if we're not hitting the mark one way or another on how we're using our time here. So speaking of which, let's transition. Um, you already know John. We'd also love to introduce Angela Lamb. She's become one of our, quite frankly, best friends in Jesus Collective. Mm -hmm. She lives in California, and I'm not even joking. Uh, it's just meeting people like Angela is part of what makes this thing a joy. Um, so she's going to co-steer with John as we spend some time with our special guest, Ken, today. So I'm going to hand over the steering wheel, I guess it is, to both of you, and away we go. Great. Hey, uh, Angela, briefly, introduce us to, okay, where are you and what are you, what are you doing, so that we have a little bit of context for you, just briefly. Okay. I am a pastor in Northern California, and uh, I am as excited about Jesus Collective as Matt is apparently excited about me. I got to be part of the Online Learning Collective, and it was incredible. So, um, is, that, is that good? That's great. That's great. Wonderful. Uh, well, now we get to interact with Ken. So, Ken, thank you for being with us, and um, let's just dive right in. Would, would love to uh, get a little bit from you as to where, uh, where are you located, what church are you a part of, how long have you been there, and um, what are some of the unique uh, challenges of spiritual formation or discipleship that you find in your context? Right. Thanks, John and Angela. Mm -hmm. It's great to, to be with you and Matt. I am a pastor in Vancouver, and uh, this morning it's really snowy and it's a rare day that the public schools are closed because we've just got a huge dump. Mm. Uh, I pastor a church called 10th, 10th Church, which uh, is a multi-site church with its central location in Mount Pleasant, which is at the geographic center of Vancouver, and I've been here for about 23 years, so quite a long time. Oh, it's exciting. Yeah. So what? Oh, go ahead, Angela. For those of us that are not as familiar with Vancouver as others, mm -hmm. could you talk a little bit about your context, uh, the culture of Vancouver? Sure. Yeah. Vancouver is a very multicultural city. It's also one of the most secular cities in North America. Uh, people, um, don't necessarily embrace traditional religion, but many people would describe themselves as, quote, spiritual and would seek a spiritual connection through the outdoors, through hiking, skiing, yoga, etc. So, in some ways, similar to your context, they're just north of San Francisco. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, and Ken, so, one of the questions that we bring to Jesus Collective and in, in the things that we think are quite common to uh, at least North America, you know, the fastest growing religious demographic in Canada and now in the U S are people who wouldn't would identify with no religious tradition and maybe atheist, maybe just spiritually curious, but not certainly not aligned with the historic faith. Uh, that seems to be the case in Vancouver. And as you think about this aspect of inviting people into discipleship, like, what are some of the challenges that you're seeing in your context to inviting people into discipleship? Yeah, people are often uh, reluctant to commit. And so, when we have an event and we offer an RSVP option, people mm -hmm. are even reluctant to commit to showing up or not. And so, that's one of the challenges uh, that we, we face. Uh, but there are also a lot of opportunities. You mentioned, John, that the largest uh, demographic 
is um, when it comes to religions, are people who identify as atheists or having no religion per se. And uh, we recently launched a new site uh, this past September at UBC. Mm-hmm. At what is the, UBC? Uh, the University of British Columbia. Okay. Yeah. At the um, encouragement of the president of the school, who is a committed Christian. And we had our first baptism last month in December, and we had three students baptized, all of whom had been atheists or had come from atheistic families. And so, in the case of um, uh, a student named Kevin, he was from China. He was raised in an atheistic culture. But as he was studying science in China, he sensed that there was some kind of design, some kind of beauty to the universe, some kind of rule maker. And he comes to UBC, buys a Bible on the campus, finds our little community and commits his life to Christ and is baptized. And so, even though there may be a growing number of atheists, I think it's also important to know that God is at work through his spirit in surprising ways. And mm-hmm. and so, we can certainly join up and collaborate with the spirit in what he is doing. Ken, maybe that's an okay segment to, to bridge to the question of uh, what are you finding that one of the key messages of the gospel is hitting this culture, this modern culture. You know, post-World War II, it was really important for mm-hmm. people to understand that there was life after death. Mm-hmm. And so, that was a, a face of the gospel that was very effective in that culture. What are you finding society is craving that the gospel has to speak to? Yeah, that's a great question, Angela. You know, there's a great deal of Anxiety, as uh, John and Matt alluded to earlier, 23% of Generation Z have, have been diagnosed with um, anxiety or, or, or depression or, or some kind of order along those lines. And so, I think that one of the, the beautiful things that Jesus offers, that the Jesus Collective emphasizes, is, is, is peace. And so, one of the things that we encourage people to do is to engage in certain spiritual practices like prayerful meditation or prayers of gratitude that help to foster that peace and, and sense of rootedness and, and connection. And, and I'm curious, so do you do this, and, and I'm not trying to create a, a false dichotomy, but do you, do you invite people who are not yet Christians to the into these spiritual practices that are cultivating the peace of the peace of Christ. And what is that like for them? Cause I, I think um, I, it used to be, I, I was a church planter in the States about 11 years ago when we planted. And back then some of our thinking was like, well, that's weird to invite people into like those really spiritual experiences because they're not Christians and they don't, they don't understand all this stuff. And so, we, we were reluctant to, but I hear you saying something different. So, what, what does that look like for you guys? Yeah, I think that a spiritual practice can be a first step toward Jesus. So, for example, last month, I hosted a time of teaching and practice around centering prayer. And one of the people who came to the gathering, there might have been you know, 50 people, was one of the ex-professional football players um, from our local team, the Lions. He is now a very successful businessman, wouldn't identify himself as a Christian. But I led this guided meditation and invited people to imagine Jesus coming toward them. And uh, we had lunch a couple of days later, and uh, he mentioned that 
he could sense Jesus coming toward him in that time of silence and guided meditation. And he was going through a lot of stress. And he said he felt the calm and the mercy and, and love of Jesus toward him. I, I don't know if he actually committed his life to Jesus mm-hmm. or not, but it was uh, a spiritual and transcendent experience where he encountered Jesus mm-hmm. in, in some way. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so based on, can you talk a little bit about the books that you have written? Can you just give us a brief overview of the content that is your message? Sure. So, thanks for asking that, Angela. So, uh, you both asked where I'm from. I'm from Vancouver now, but uh, I'm originally from Tokyo, was raised mostly in North America. But then, when I was in my 20s, I was... um, working as what they call a 7-Eleven man in Japan, which meant that my workday went from 7 in the morning till 11 at night. I was in the corporate world. Things were pretty crazy. And eventually, I became a pastor here on the west coast of Canada. And I thought, things are going to settle down for me. Uh, But I was very naive in that assumption, as as you know, Angela. And and as you know, John. And and I, I was keeping almost the same hours and just, you know, treading water. And then my mentor, Leighton Ford, who is a respected Christian leader, originally from Ontario, the brother-in-law to the late Billy Graham, invited me on a pilgrimage to the holy places of Ireland. I'd never been to Ireland before. Mm. We ended up visiting the ancient monasteries and learned about a way of life from the monks called a rule of life that enabled them to experience God as alive and real, not just as they were praying, in the monastery or in the chapel, but as they were harvesting field, uh, uh, wheat in the fields, as they were studying in the library, as they were preparing a meal in the kitchen. And I was hungry for a relationship with God that was that alive and that real. I wanted to experience God in every part of my life. And so I began to put into practice some of the, the lessons I learned from the monks, uh, form this rhythm or rule of life that would go on to change my life. And so that's what I write about. That's exciting. I want, to hear, I want to hear more about the rule of life and what that looks like for you personally. But before you do that, can I take you back a little bit? Because I want to press in uh, for, for people listening to this conversation who are in secular cities and more post-Christian places. I think we are wrestling with how does the practice of Jesus and the call of Christ, how, does it, how is it relevant to the places we find ourselves today where we're starting with zero, you know, many people now in, yeah, exactly. Many people now in North America might find themselves three generations removed from having any Christian history in their family, any Christian experience. So they're starting from zero. It's only just cultural stereotypes that they're working with. Uh, So you've mentioned, you mentioned anxiety that people are looking for peace. What are some other things, other intersections with, the practice of Jesus or the way of Christ that you find people are connecting to? Yeah. So I was at a, at a dinner party and I was chatting with a Buddhist friend of mine from uh, Tibet. He's an artist. And uh, he says, I'm a Buddhist, not a devout Buddhist, but a nominal Buddhist. I have Buddhist friends that are really serious about their faith. And he said that we Buddhists engage in meditation, but you Christians help other people. You help the poor. And I said, uh, I, I think Buddhists help others as well. We also engage in meditation. But that, that conversation made me think that we are called to be with God, but also for others. And uh, Tenth is, is known 
uh, as a church that cares for the poor. And uh, when I first came to 10th, you know, 23 years ago, I was intimidated by what I was facing down. The church had cycled through 20 ministers in 20 years, had wow. gone from over a thousand to a hundred and something. So, it lost a lot of its membership. Wow. The secretary walked in my office and said, if the ship sinks now, everyone will blame you because you were the last captain at the helm. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to motivate me to work harder. No pressure. <laughs> yeah. That'll send you to the monastery right there. Yeah. yeah. That is and then, um, my mentor, Leighton Ford, happened to be in town, and uh, we sat in my car, and I wanted to ask him for some encouragement, but I, I didn't know him well enough to ask for that. I just felt that was would be too pathetic. And so, he said, Leighton, can you give me some counsel? He crossed his long legs, paused, and he said, remember that God is an artist. Hmm. He will never lead you to copy anyone else, so seek God for a unique vision for this place. Hmm. Took those words to heart, didn't know what they meant. And as I was praying one day, I sensed the Holy Spirit saying, if you will bless those who cannot repay you, I will bless you, meaning as a church. Mm -hmm. Didn't know exactly what that meant either, but I sensed that we were to care for the poor. And not long after, a homeless guy ended up dying outside of our church building because of the cold weather. Uh, one of our elders had taken him to his furnished laneway house a carriage house, a garage converted into a home and said, you can live here for the rest of your life for free as long as you want. But he kept gravitating back to the church and ended up dying, succumbing to the elements. And so I said, we're going to open up the church on the coldest nights of the year for the homeless. We began a simple shelter ministry and we've had people in the community who don't know Christ volunteer with that shelter ministry. We also engage in ministry in Cambodia to advocate on behalf of women and children vulnerable to being trafficked. And we've had people who aren't particularly religious invest financially in that. And so, as Jesus calls us, and I know that Jesus' collective is committed to this, into a life of compassion and uh, a life of justice, I think that is a connection point for the broader culture as well. Mm -hmm. And as you are inviting those people to connect physically meeting the needs of the people in your, in, you know, the homeless in your building that night, as you're getting to know those people, uh, how are you, or what does it look like for you to invite them into kind of next steps to begin to encounter Jesus for themselves personally? Cause I think, I think a lot of our churches do outreach and we, we do these things and we do have people who connect in. I know Angela, you guys have a similar story uh, with being a, a, a shelter for people with the yeah the fires in your area. Ken, how are you guys inviting people to take engaging steps with Jesus once you've made those connections around compassion or justice? Yeah, so we've had a shelter ministry. We, 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 we've housed people last night because it's very cold tonight, but we've also started a cafe uh, mm. for um, folks in the community, employing those that are underemployed or unemployed. We offer training, sustainable uh, job opportunities for people who are homeless or people who haven't been able to maintain regular jobs in the past. And, and through this job training, through the cafe, we've really fostered community. We also have a Bible study for those who want to explore their, their spiritual journey a little bit further, their connection with Jesus. Some of them come to service. Uh, some of them become part of other uh, life groups. So, it is integrated um, and you know, step-by-step step, um, based on a relationship with us, we're gently pointing them toward toward Jesus. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so in applying, so a lot of people on these podcasts are pastors who have questions about discipleship, like John just asked. Mm -hmm. Um, So the gist of my question is, are you seeing a change in how people are discipled? Um, Not just the message that we get to give in order to offer good news, but then how to to grow their faith beyond that or to equip them to grow their faith. Uh, But what I'm hearing underneath there is that you're finding relationship is a gigantic piece of that. But what are you finding is key to to growing disciples? Mm -hmm. That's a great question, Angela. As as John mentioned earlier and Matt, uh, in the age of the internet, we have tons of content, maybe too much content to wade through. Yeah. Uh, St. Teresa of Avila um, lived in the 16th century, as as you know, and uh, she had this vision that that God revealed to her. She didn't want to write it down, but her superiors um, urged her to do so. And that became the basis of her classic book, The Interior Castle. And in that book, uh, Teresa describes seven mansions of spiritual growth as we move closer and closer to Jesus. You know, the first mansion being crossing the line of faith. The second mansion being connection to God, but also feeling pulled by the world. Uh, the third mansion being settling into a, a faith community, some kind of church, reading the Bible, praying. But she says, when we travel from mansion four to seven, this path of deeper union with Christ, um, what we need is direct experience of God through the Holy Spirit, through mm. silence, mm. and we need relationship. We need a spiritual director or a spiritual friend. And so, I've said to our people, preaching is important to me in our church as it is for you all and some of our friends that are listening, but I can't take people beyond mention for <laughs> Teresa's paradox. <laughs> Sadly. Um, uh, and so, we encourage folks to have a direct encounter with God mm. through silence, centering prayer. We've also begun a, a pilot ministry called Soul Trios, where we train people in the art of spiritual direction. These are lay people, and we divide them into threes and show them how they can offer spiritual direction to each other. So, the content oh, wow. isn't, isn't primarily you know, from a book, but it's our lives and what the Spirit is doing. And we've had about 185 people thus far go through the pilot. And uh, there was a group recently of three young adults who said, this has been so meaningful and so transformative for us that we're intending to stay friends for the rest of our lives. I believe you. Our little six weeks in the online learning collective, we were split into triads, and it was incredibly powerful to walk that journey in a smaller group of people in these deep topics. Yeah, that is not surprising. Okay, so relationship is a huge piece of that. Can we post the link to the book, Zulima? Is that an okay? She did. Yep. I believe she did to both of the books. Oh, sorry. No, the book with the castles. Oh, oh interior, the, in, uh, the interior castle. Yeah. 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 And if you want a, a more contemporary version, Thomas Ashbrook has um, written a book called, um, I think, Mansions of the Heart that uh, offers a commentary and some modern examples of people who've gone through the mansions. And so okay. I would recommend that as well. Mansions of the Heart. Mm-hmm. That's great. Hey, uh, maybe I can mention something else. Angela, I was in your, well, in your general area, 
was it? Yeah, not this past Sunday, but the weekend before, uh, I was speaking in San Jose there in Silicon Valley, and uh, I did a session on Sabbath with with some of the leaders of a church, and then and then preached. And you know, people are are, are busy. Um, they they feel like they've got so much going on. I think another spiritual practice that connects with folks, whether in Vancouver, California, Toronto, or wherever in North America or the world, is the practice of Sabbath, which reminds us that our identity isn't primarily defined by building bricks for Pharaoh, but the simple glorious fact that you're a beloved daughter of God, Angela, John, you're a beloved son. And that's, that's powerful. Um, we not only have people that are homeless in our community, but people that are running businesses, professors at the university, artists, you know, people that lead very demanding lives, parents of young kids. And a Sabbath is also a truly transformative practice. Yeah. Amen. I've stumbled into Sabbath in the last um, number of years and it's, it's a game changer. I, is there, is there anything, is there anywhere we could go um, to learn more about what you are doing to train the people in these triads who are doing spiritual direction for each other? Ken? Yeah, we don't have the material posted online, but um, maybe Zulima, you can um, spell this out for folks. My colleague, Jay Ewing is our pastor of spiritual direction and he can be reached at, uh, J-A-Y, so J, um, Juliet, Alpha, Yankee, at 10th.ca, at Tango Echo November, Tango Hotel, dot Charlie Alpha. So I'm sure he'd be glad to hear from you. So. Are you an air traffic controller? What's going on? Uh, I like to sail, so. Um, That's yeah, glorious. So, yeah. So, yeah. I feel like we're that. talking in code. That's very exciting. <laughs> yeah. My name is very unusual too, so I have to spell it out for people. Sometimes people wonder, "Am I Italian or are you Italian?" But uh, it's, it's a Japanese name, so yeah. yeah, that's helpful. And just a plug, you know, for the vision of Jesus Collective, for churches that are part of Jesus Collective, as we find amazing resources, we develop them. We're creating an online hub for us to be able to share them with each other, so that we can equip each other for, for the mission, uh, with like-minded, you know, resources that we're, that we trust. So yeah, this is, that's exciting to hear Ken. So Ken, I am incredibly drawn to the concepts, uh, in your books, but then also what you're saying about what face of the gospel we have to offer an anxiety riddled, polarized nation. Um, but I also recognize that Gosh, when you said that seven to 11 man, and then you said you transitioned to pastoral ministry, it was like, oh, I'll bet you were a seven to 11 guy there too. <laughs> Would, could you offer a word of, um, I'm going to say counsel or advice, but it might be a word of encouragement uh, to, to people that work in this industry, that it is really hard to separate out what we are in charge of versus what God is in charge of and meet mm. the demand that comes, just speaking from uh, someone who has studied and practiced in spiritual formation in a quieter internal um, rhythm, you can be bossy or you can be encouraging, but would you say a word, would you say yeah. a word to, to church leaders? Yeah, thanks, Angela. I appreciate that. Um, some people assume because I, I've done some writing on spiritual practices that I'm a naturally contemplative person. I'm not. Um, you know, I, I, in some ways, love the pace of being a 7-Eleven man in Tokyo. I, I love the, 
the, the stress of pastoring. I see it as a challenge. Mm. I'm a very easily distracted person at any given time. I can feel like there are 127 monkeys jumping around in my head. And so uh, what I do in the morning, one of the first things I do after a little run with our golden retriever, Sasha, is I'll sit and I'll simply take some time to breathe deeply, breathing in through my nose, breathing out, breathing in slowly, breathing out. Then I'll start to wonder how much time has gone by and uh, I'll reach for my phone, not to check my messages. I can't even find my phone right now. <laughs> Here it is. Uh, and I'll um, open up a free app called Centering Prayer. So, Lima, you might want to post this to it. It's free. called Centering Prayer. It has a timer on it, so I'm not thinking about the time. And I'll set the timer to maybe 15 or 20 minutes. And hit begin. Chime sounds as though I were at a monastery being summoned to pray. And I just enter into this time of silence. And uh, sometimes I'll use scripture to still my mind. And when I come out of that time of silent centering, I feel more focused, more relaxed. And throughout the day, just a bit more conscious of Jesus. Now, I know that 7-Eleven types of people, whether they're in business or um, in church leadership, feel they don't have the time for this. But this is something that will add to your day. And so if I'm going to face down a very crucial conversation, if I have to raise the temperature in the room on an issue, if I need to be relaxed and calm or fierce, this centering provides the energy for that. So I feel like I need maybe 45 or 55 minutes of silence on those days that are especially uh, demanding. And my wife said this, um, you mentioned, John, that uh, the Jesus Collective really isn't about conferences, but about relationships and about collaboration. Love that. You know, a lot of people would think nothing of going away for a few days to go to a conference where they're getting lots of content. A couple of years ago, I took a sabbatical, you know, after 20 years at 10th. And the first thing I did was I went to your state of California and uh, went to the beautiful city of Big Sur. And I spent four or five days in silence at the new Camadoli monastery there. And um, it was transformative. And that was a couple of years ago. My wife said, since you've been there and engaged in that silence and have continued that practice, you're like the caterpillar that has become a butterfly. You're so much calmer, more centered, more present. And so this can really be transformative. And it's certainly not for just the quote contemplative types. I'm not that person. Mm -hmm. uh, but for people that are driven, that are type A like myself, it, it um, provides a, a level of joy and calm, uh, but also when we need it, um, ferocity and energy to, to, <laughs> to drive things ahead. So, hmm. How long do you sit in uh, the centering prayer, did you say? So, so often 15 or 20 minutes, but if it's an unusually busy day or if I'm facing down something really stressful, I'll need 50 minutes or maybe an yeah. hour. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. I just love the fact we do make the assumption that those who sit quietly and practice contemplative um, disciplines are the people that are naturally drawn there. It is really encouraging to me as mm. a high energy person to hear you say that it is as much a feed to your calm as it is to your fierce. Mm -hmm. I really resonate with that. Mm. Love it. So I want to, I want to, I know we're skipping around and we're going from the personal to the, 
organizational and the corporate. And that's, I think it's great. Um, I, I do want to, for our uh, listeners who are asking, how do I disciple people in a post-Christian culture where you're saying it's, it's not primarily about content because content's everywhere. It's about experiencing the presence of God that is transformational. And as you guys uh, at 10th, as you disciple new people who come to faith in the church, what content do you give them? And then how do you invite them into an experience? Do you do this one-on-one? Do you have a structure or a, a strategy for how you do it? We'd just love to hear uh, I'm always like wanting to collect stories of how are people making disciples in these days? Yeah. So we have a, a flow probably like um, you and Angela and, and Matt have experienced before. So we offer an alpha course for people who are exploring mm-hmm. a kind of beta level course where uh, people will um, look at rule of life. And uh, we use Scott by everything. My first book as a, the text for that and show people how to organize their lives so that Christ really is at the center of mm-hmm. their life and how they can experience Christ, not only in their times of prayer and in their life groups, but in their work, in their family life, in their sexuality, in their recreation. And, and so we teach on rule of life. And then we offer a course um, using Pete Scazzaro's and Jerry Scazzaro's material and on emotionally healthy spirituality and relationships. And then we have a leadership uh, development course, um, similar to the stuff probably that you're offering through Jesus Collective. And then um, we also offer opportunities for people to go to monasteries uh, and engage in Mm -hmm. silence. Uh, We offer one-on-one spiritual direction through TRIO or or one-on-one spiritual direction in some cases. And then in other cases, uh, train people on how to experience that in, in TRIO. So there are a number of things and, you know, the, the, the foundation we pray is Christ, obviously, but it's it's done in relationship, and we pray in the power of the Spirit. Mm, I love that, and I love that you're um, naming the Holy Spirit mm. as as the one who's manifesting like this this power and presence mm-hmm. in in your worship gatherings. Uh, you know, in a post content age uh, where people are craving experience, what what does that look like? How do you Again, you can't make someone experience God, but how do you create a space for encounter and experience? Yeah, so for example, um, last month, um, we had a a Christmas concert, a series of Christmas concerts, and uh, we had a lot of guests who weren't church-going people. And in my very brief little talk, um, I described uh, an experience of wonder um, where I was canoeing under starlight uh, on the Sunshine Coast here in BC and how every time I put my paddle into the water, the water lit up like fireworks mm. uh, because of the phosphorescence. Oh, okay. so put my paddle in the water, the water explodes w- w- you know, with white fire. And um, I asked the people in the group, or there, there were hundreds of people, thousands across all the concerts, um, to imagine an experience of wonder, whether in nature or when they were in love or at the birth of a baby. And I paused and I said, um, just savor that for a moment, that experience of wonder, and know that that's how God feels about you. God experiences Mm -hmm. wonder over you. And I think to help people experience that and to sit with that, um, 
can help people understand God, not just at a cognitive level, but at an effective level uh, and hopefully at a spiritual level also. I love that. You're hitting the emotions. You're hitting the imagination. Uh, you're, you are hitting the intellect, but like, it seems like you're trying there strategically to engage like the whole, the whole parts, mm-hmm. all the parts of a person as they connect that to God. Uh, that's, that's really interesting. On, um, on other occasions outside of the, like a Christmas Eve service, just on an average Sunday. Um, yeah. Do you guys build in those spaces for encounter as well into those services or what, what does that look like at 10? Yeah. So sometimes um, we'll, we'll do that. So in the fall, I was um, doing a sermon series on how the grace of God covers our sense of shame and not being enough. Mm-hmm. One of the sermons addressed the issue of envy and, as an antidote to envy, I, I spoke about gratitude, how gratitude and, and, and joyful uh, thanksgiving um, and a feeling of uh, not enough and envy are incompatible. Mm-hmm. So, I, I uh, led people through a gratitude exercise where I asked them to scan the last 24 hours and to think about some of the best gifts, uh, whether it was um, a meal, whether it was a good night's sleep, whether it was um, an, an encouraging experience or a word of affirmation, and just had people sit with that, I think, for a couple of minutes. And, um, you know, the, the neuroscience shows that if you will sit with a positive experience for 30 seconds, dopamine yes. is released yes. in your brain. And, and we tend to do the exact opposite. When we're criticized, we tend to brood over the criticism, um, but the, the good experiences often just flip bias. But if we can relive those and sit with those, uh, we literally start feeling better on a you know, neurobiological level. But uh, if we believe that God is the author of those gifts, we are also drawn more closely to God as well. Mm-hmm. And so, we did that right in service, so right in the middle of the sermon. Mm-hmm. Oh, my word! <laughs> this is so fun! <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay, so I have a question. You're speaking to things that I love because it's a human need and not specific to a, a culture. The culture of Vancouver sounds mm-hmm. very similar to the culture uh, that I have, but uh, not necessarily the culture that is across the continent. Mm-hmm. So you're speaking to human need. Um, do you see any variance between the generations? Yeah, I... You know, the, the older uh, people in our community, and we've got a lot of people in their 20s and 30s, but it really is multi-generational. I tend to be more loyal and dutiful to institutions, including to the church. Okay. Um, whereas younger people, they want connection, relationship. They might not use this term, but attachment. They want to feel seen. And so, that's, that's really important. So, we uh, rejigged our entire youth ministry a couple of years ago. Um, away from big events. Occasionally, we'll still do those, but we have divided uh, the youth from all five of our sites into smaller groups where they um, can experience mentoring, being seen by someone just a little older than they are taught, but also mobilized into service around their gifts. And so, um, yeah, I think that young people, especially, you know, I mean, obviously, it's a generalization. um, In many cases, would rather be seen by an individual or in the context of a smaller community uh, than go to something, you know, big and, you know, with a lot of hype. Um, Obviously, some young people are drawn to that as well. But, um, yeah, we are 
prioritizing relationship and care, especially for our younger folks. So, so if I could uh, use the classic trick of repeating what I hear you say to make sure that I am <laughs> hearing it correctly, the themes of peace, of relationship, of service, and justice. Mm-hmm. You're, you're finding across the board to be the face of the gospel that is being effective, but you're finding that the younger generations are craving that just as much, if not more, mm-hmm. than the older generations. Yeah. Ah. Sounds hopeful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't, are you familiar with um, Bryant Myers' work? He taught at Fuller for a number of years. Um, mm-hmm. I'm also involved with World Vision, and he worked for World Vision, but he said that, you know, his World Vision works in different places around the world, some places where you can't lead with a verbal witness about mm-hmm. Jesus. He describes this, this, this pyramid that I write about also in uh, God in My Everything, a, a pyramid of the gospel. So, on one side is um, word, but on another side is deed, and on another side, mm-hmm. side is life, and on another side is sign, like is in signs and wonders. And mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, depending on where you are in the world, you can't lead with word. Or, so, you might lead with your life or with some deed, caring for the poor, or in some cases, okay. supernatural science, you know, uh, as God intervenes. And I think that here in North America, um, that's a, a good paradigm as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Say, say more on that. Apply that to North America. Well, um, think of a story of someone here... Um, in our in our city, uh, who lives um, you know not that far from from us, our family, um, he was uh, not a Christian, and uh, his wife was dying of cancer. And one of his Christian neighbors uh, came by, I think, every day for six months as she was dying to bring food or offer care, um, to hold her hand and pray with her. She was a nominal Christian, and and her husband Chris was so moved by. Um, his neighbors care for Patty that he committed his life to Christ. And so the gospel wasn't preached first through um, a set of propositions, but through um, acts of love, which demonstrated the heart of Jesus. And he was drawn to Christ as a result of that. Mm. So it seems like so simple, (laughs) you know, but it's so profound at the same time. Yeah. And if I can share another story, um, you know, people wonder how the Christian line in my family started given that Japan is, is a very not Christian country, less than 1% are Christian. And my great uncle uh, was on his deathbed. Uh, he was given six months to live. He had TB um, at a time when tuberculosis was um, a death sentence. So he's on his deathbed and someone gives him a Bible and he reads the Bible, comes to the place in the gospels where Jesus heals people. He doesn't believe in Jesus, but he looks up at the ceiling and says, Jesus, if you're out there, would you heal me? He was in his, I think, early 40s at the time. Jesus miraculously healed him. He walked out of the hospital that day, lived uh, uh, through his 80s. I came to know Christ and led my mom to Christ. And so, that would be the gospel as sign. So, yeah, and uh, that was a pretty convincing sign for him and, and for my mom. And my mom eventually helped point me to Christ, so. Angela, I don't want to steal any questions from you. I, we're both like sitting on piles of questions. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> so do you <laughs> do you uh, do you have a question? If not, I'll I'll ask one of mine. 
Well, I I have that bonus question. I yeah, that's what I was thinking. to ask him about. But okay, that's, good. that's our bonus. So if you want to go first, no, go no, no. It. I was going to ask the bonus question. <laughs> <laughs> we okay. are like on the same page. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, Ken, I noticed on your Twitter feed that you um, are making comments about the Trump uh, Trump administration, which I just found interesting because. To be perfectly honest, I kind of hope our um, American politics doesn't bleed. <laughs> huh. That's interesting, um, Angela. Yeah. Uh, so I, I am curious, as you call people to a p- posture of love and of peace and a message of good news and um, pulling people together, how are you... Uh, are you planning to do specific discipleship of your people in preparation for what will probably be one of the most polarizing years in this election year? Uh, can you just speak a little bit to how you're going to guide your church through that? Yeah. Um, you know, I make it clear that we're not going to line up um, behind partisan political issues, but that justice matters. And sometimes justice issues overlap with political issues. And so, we will speak out on that, but we'll also recognize that there will be differing opinions um, out there. Um, as you picked up, Angela, uh, from my Twitter feed, you know, I'm not a Trump supporter, uh, generally speaking. I, I think he's done some good things, um, but um, yeah, I, I have issues with other things he's done. Um, but when we disagree, as uh, Matt and Bruxy and, and John, and, and you pointed out at a Jesus Collective Gathering, we want to do so with kindness and uh, with a desire to bring people together and not separate and to never make the attacks personal. And um, I wrote a piece that touched on the Trump administration for uh, Christianity today a couple of years ago. And um, I'm grateful that the editor said that it really seemed to model their vision for beautiful orthodoxy and speaking ways that are gracious. Um, Sometimes we need to speak the hard truth, but hopefully we're not doing it from a place of vindictive anger. Mm -hmm. um, Will you do any form of um, spiritual formation and discipleship and uh, I would say training and equipping mm -hmm. your people to uh, weather this year well? Yeah, we don't have a, uh, uh, so I'm from Canada, as you know, so we don't have a specific plan, you know, vis-a-vis, say, the November election, if, if that's what you have in mind. But we want to continue to emphasize that, you know, someone, I really happen to admire Barack Obama, but I think he once said that that um, America is the world's last great hope. Um, and I know what he meant, I think, in context, but um, let's remember that um the last great hope of the world isn't a political party or a president Thank or God prime minister. <laughs> Jesus, you know? And to emphasize that even if things don't go our way um, in terms of our uh, preferences politically, uh, that Jesus is the world's last great hope mm-hmm. and to center on him as you're doing with the Jesus Collective. And, and what would you say to your brothers and sisters leading churches in the States mm-hmm. in this year? That's very polarized. As I'm talking, so I live in Canada, I'm from the States, but as I'm talking to my friends in the States, they just are attesting to how polarized it is. And here we are in election year, it's getting more polarized. Um, We are making Jesus the center. We have this centered set approach, but uh, we also don't want to alienate 
half of the populace, either in the States by Democrat or by Republican, in what we say as pastors, and yet we're trying to speak the truth, and yet we're trying to hold a church together in unity. This mm-hmm. seems, it feels almost impossible. And I don't know if you have any wisdom. Scary for sure. Yeah. Like, what wisdom would you share to mm-hmm. our friends in the States who are trying to hold all of this together uh, in an election year? Yeah, I think that it's it's important, you know, for pastors and leaders um, in a time that is is as polarized as now to spend um, time in silence and in prayerful reflection, uh, so that when we speak or when we stay silent, it's out of a place of of spirit guided mindfulness mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. versus a reactiveness. Um, I also um, feel that it's important to respectfully acknowledge people who we disagree with, for example. Um, so, if there is someone um, who's publicly advocating on behalf of a certain political candidate, who's a, mm-hmm. say a pastor, um, to speak about that person who's advocating well and, and graciously. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, if we feel convicted to speak out on an issue and we realize that we might lose some people, but we sense that this is the right thing to do to have the courage to do it. So, I really um, um, respected Max Lucado when this was before the election, the, the, the previous, uh, the, the most recent previous um, presidential election when he wrote an op-ed piece that I think ran in the Washington Post about how he wouldn't feel comfortable um, having his, any of his daughters date someone like Donald Trump. I think that took a lot of courage for him as a pastor in Texas. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, yeah. He probably got a lot of blowback from that. But I think he did the right thing because he felt convinced uh, that that was the right thing to do in the moment. And then someone else, um, Sam Rodriguez, he's a pastor that I'm acquainted with. Um, I think he posted something on his website as to why um, Trump should not be impeached. You know, And, and mm-hmm. I think he did the right thing because he felt that was right based on his convictions. And, and so to acknowledge that there will be different views um, and to speak respectfully and graciously, but to also not necessarily hold back when we feel called to take a stand on something, even though that could be somewhat divisive. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I and, think I, yeah, go on, John. Yeah, just, I just want to say, it sounds like we can't do this without the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> can't do that, but that's mm-hmm. what it seems like to navigate these, these polarities uh, in a way that doesn't create us cause us to get sucked into um the ideological vortex that's pulling us apart on each side what i hear ken saying i love that practice it's just it gives you an opportunity to correct me but it also is just to push back angela Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) what i hear so i was asking from a standpoint of okay how can we equip our people to walk in peace in this coming year and what i hear you saying back is we need to actually equip our people to walk with the holy spirit in this year and that is going to help them walk in peace mm-hmm. no that's great i think it was actually john said that so let's uh, give credit where credit is due but i wholeheartedly agree <laughs> and uh i like this guy yeah when, when i talked about silence withdrawing the, the implicit in that maybe it wasn't explicit but it's to withdraw in a space where we encounter God uh, and the Spirit. So, mm-hmm. 
Okay, so uh, part of these online podcasts, one of the beauties is we have the ability to connect um, with thought leaders directly as participants. So we have a few questions already in the chat. Here's how we're going to do this. I'll probably call out the person that question we want to raise, and then we're going to switch your video on and your uh, and unmute you so you have the ability to actually ask your question straight to Ken, even if it was in the chat. Um, so I'd like to start uh, with Rosie Jansa, and I will try to find you, Rosie, in the participants. Zulima, if you beat me, that's totally okay. Can we see Rosie? There okay. we go. Hi, Rosie. Hi. Hi, Rosie. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm loving this podcast so far. I would really love to know, how do you create um, just an awareness for someone who's maybe grown up in the church and has that sense of duty or obligation for being there? How do you create awareness that there is more to relationship with God than just duty? Like, How have you done that in your church, Ken, and how has, like, what has worked to just create a hunger for what you didn't even know was there, if that makes sense. (laughs) That's a great uh, question, Rosie. So, one of the things that I do at the end of my own time of centering prayer is I I offer some words of intention. Um, Thomas Keating said that the goal of centering prayer isn't perfect attention, but it's to express our intention And so, the first thing I will pray as I did this morning is, God, um, awaken my heart so that I love you more deeply and more fully. And um, I encourage others to do the same. And I think that if we are lost in wonder over God's love for us, his affection for us, uh, that um, the motive of duty tends to take a backseat and that the motive becomes gratitude and um, a reciprocal kind of love. And um, I really emphasize that um, in Survival Guide for the Soul, that if we really live loved, that it will change the way we move through the world. Um, If we live loved, we'll be um, more compassionate, but we'll also be bolder. Uh, We'll also have less toxic guilt and shame. We'll have more freedom. And so, I, I feel that if a person... And it's not just about content, but if a person can awaken through experience to a sense that, oh, I am, Rosie is loved deeply (laughs) by a God who delights in her and cherishes her. Uh, To the extent that your heart is moved by that, Mm -hmm. um, the motive of duty will tend to recede and you'll you'll step ahead with, I think, a a joyful sense of gratitude and and, um, and love. Yeah, duty, I think C.S. Lewis said, is a good crutch uh, occasionally, but that shouldn't be our primary means of getting around, you know. So, in emergencies and crisis, duty is good, but yeah, that's a great not the best um, ML. Mm-hmm. Okay. Awesome. Thank you, Rosie. Uh, can we transition to Damon? I believe uh, Raymer, is that an appropriate pronunciation of your name? And your question about uh, James K.A. Smith. Good morning. Good morning. That's actually spot on. Uh, good job. Uh, Rosie, I loved your question. I think that's so relevant to so many communities, um, especially for trying to bring in people who feel like they're on that. Um, yeah, James K.A. Smith is from a reformed, kind of highly liturgical background. Um, and your ideas of um, religious uh, practice being so important. Um, I grew up in a, a Mennonite kind of free church 
in a style that didn't have heavy liturgical systems. And I felt like that made things soft sometimes. Um, how, how do we integrate something without just becoming deeply liturgical and actually get into those practices? How do we integrate something without becoming deeply liturgical? Uh, how, do we, how do we form practice uh, without the kind of the benefit sometimes of having a liturgical system that gives us the framework? Yeah, and so I, I write about that in, in uh, God Am I Everything. And so uh, I use the image of a trellis that supports a grapevine. And I say that uh, a rule of life ideally is something that uh, supports your life like a trellis supports a grapevine. And, and, and that it's not something that we uh, serve for its own sake, but something that, that helps us um, stay rooted in Christ and upheld in Christ. And so it's, it's definitely um, grace-based. Um, I'm not sure, I may not be directly answering your question, but I, I say that if our rule of life or our liturgy, uh, broadly speaking, makes our life feel heavier and it's pushing us down. <laughs> Where are you going? <laughs> um, then it's probably a man-created, uh, self-created, woman-created rule. Whereas if the rhythm or rule is spirit-inspired, it will make our life feel lighter and freer and, and more spacious. I think that um, in terms of liturgy, and again, I, I know that I'm not directly answering your question, um, I think there's certain temperaments that are more drawn to that. And so, even though I'm not part of a, quote, liturgical church, uh, each morning I pray um, the prayer of confession from the common book of prayer. I woke up this morning and I prayed, uh, most merciful God, I have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what I have done and left undone. I haven't loved you with my whole heart, and I have not loved my neighbor as myself. I'm truly sorry, and I humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on me and forgive me that I might delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. And so every morning I pray that prayer, I use liturgy because I know it can orient my heart. Um, and for different people, um, more or less um, liturgy will be life-giving. So I think that it, it would be wise to experiment and see what feels most fruitful for you. Um, brief follow-up on that. Um, leading a church then, would you use liturgy to, uh, or would you start incorporating some form of liturgy as part of your worship services? Um, for me, it's, it's been helpful as a personal practice to take it on, but again, being part of a free church, liturgy is often seen as ritualistic and dead and suspicious. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so yeah, we do integrate um, liturgy into uh, especially... Yeah, across all our sites, but especially uh, two of them, our, our evening service and our, our site in Kitsilano. Um, the liturgy can, can, can be powerful. And so, for example, this Sunday, I'm going to be preaching on confession. And at the end of the service, someone will stand up and say, uh, Almighty God, have mercy on you, pardon and deliver you from all your sins, confirm and strengthen you in all goodness, and keep you in eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so, I think that someone thought about that. Was it Thomas Cramner or whoever wrote that? Um, th th they worded it really well. And so, I think there's value for non-liturgical churches to integrate a certain amount of liturgy into the worship services to draw on the best of our history as right. a Christian tradition. So, yeah. 
Thanks so much, Ken. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you bet, Damon. Uh, you stay warm. It looks like you're outside. <laughs> uh, it's minus 40, 42 where we are. So. Where, well, where it's amazing are you? that you're alive. It's, uh... Uh, I'm, I'm a few hours north of Edmonton. Um, oh, my gosh. Deeply rural area, so... Okay, so well, you're listening. You're, you're tuning in at your own risk. By the way, Jesus yeah. Collective is not responsible. <laughs> we hope you. We hope you survive. Yeah. <laughs> this is the guy that loses filter on the call. Olivia, that sounds crazy. We're coming your way in just a moment, so just brace yourself. Um, Ken, could I press in just a little bit to to get some clarity on what? How do you briefly describe a rule of life or a rhythm of life? Is that like a set of practices? Yeah, it's a, it's a set of spiritual practices okay. uh, that supports your life with Christ. And, and, and so, um, yeah, for me, uh, my rule of life involves this prayerful meditation that I've described, a physical exercise, which I actually enjoy. So, this morning, um, it's, it's snowing hard outside, but I, I was at the pool, indoor pool, not an outdoor pool, uh, and then Sabbath. So, th- those comprise the okay. practices for my own rule of life. So. Okay. All right, Olivia. Yes. Can you hear me? There's some background noise behind you, Olivia. I'm in a restaurant, so I was not sure. Here, hi. Hey. These would actually work, but um, make it quick. I'm coming from Ottawa. Hi. Um, yeah, my, so me and my husband, we lead a small group at our church in the young adult ministry. And our group has been the kind of floater group. And we haven't really had consistency in a while. And I, I find that I have a hard time connecting with the people that are there. So I'm trying to find a way to build disciples and build spiritual growth while not being able to really connect with people in my own group. So, yeah, I'm not exactly sure how to like you. I'm looking for, for answers on how to handle that. So, if you have any suggestions on, yeah, how do you build, like, my question was, how do you build disciples with people you don't really connect with personally, even when you try? <laughs> Could you hear that, Ken? Yeah, yeah. So, okay. uh, how to build disciples with people that you don't connect with personally, where there's maybe not that much chemistry. Um, I know it's subjective, but um, you know, when it comes to one-on-one mentoring or spiritual direction, for sure. And I think to some extent, yeah, within a small group context, it's important that there is a sense that I identify with you, Angela or John, in some way, um, that there is some kind of, you know, maybe for lack of a better word, chemistry and, and connection. And, and so, if she's not finding that in this in the group, and, and I'm not sure, I couldn't quite hear how her husband is experiencing that, it might be good for her, um, for you, if you um, to seek out maybe a spiritual director or someone you can meet with one-on-one that you really have that sense of connection with, uh, because I, I, I sense that's important uh, in terms of your growth. Um, and another thing, uh, I'm not sure how much uh, vulnerability there is in the group, but if, if there is enough trust uh, and confidence in the members of the group in terms of their integrity, wisdom, and confidentiality, if there's a way uh, for people to... Um, 
be transparent and, and vulnerable in maybe confession of sin or struggles, um, uh, you know, that might be a path toward a deeper sense of community. John Wesley, in his small groups called bands, had these questions that were pretty pointed about where were you struggling with temptation and sin and how are you doing with God? Um, Ignatius of Loyola from the 16th century also had some pretty pointed questions uh, that can help along those lines as well. So, so you might try some of those um, questions and figures from church history to maybe help drive it deeper. But beyond that, maybe also explore spiritual direction or a one-on-one connection with someone that you really connect with. So Hmm. that's really helpful. Uh, So we we're inviting people, please uh, put your hands up or uh, note in the chat that you have a question. And uh, I would love to ask Ken, while we're kind of waiting for some more questions, what would you say to either a pastor leader um, who's starting out in that that practice of silence or coach a pastor or leader who's coaching somebody who's starting out in the practice of silence, of centering prayer, of solitude, these practices that are so radically disorienting from the rhythms of our culture where um, many people can't, um, they get very uncomfortable without having their phone around them for three minutes or sitting in silence is very scary. Uh, for more than two minutes or three minutes. So what what would you say to those people in how to take these next steps? Yeah, so if you're drawn to silence as, as a way to, to center yourself in Christ, um, first of all, I would encourage you to start with a small increment, maybe five minutes, work up to seven, 10, 15, mm-hmm. 20, and longer. So do it gradually. And then second, it's helpful to have a trampoline, not a literal trampoline uh, that, 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 you, that you jump on, but a, a trampoline that can sort of elevate you into God's presence. And so um, your phone here can be helpful not to check your text messages <laughs> or your social media, but I use a podcast called Encounter. It's not an app, but it's a free uh, podcast. And um, I can just show it here. And basically, it it offers a, about a 15-minute guided meditation w- with a little bit of music, a scripture that is repeated in different versions, a kind of Lectio Divina, some silence. And so, if you're beginning, having someone guide you through it using a podcast like Encounter, uh, the website is encounteringpeace.org, I believe, uh, encounteringpeace.org. That can be really helpful. A number of people like the Jesuit um, app, and they have an app uh, called Pray As You Go. Some mm-hmm. of you may have used that, but to have some kind of resource that trampolines you into a consciousness of God and then starting with small increments and then building on that. Oh, that's super helpful. That's super practical. Yeah, it's it really is- helpful also very cool because it is an addiction to our phones mm-hmm. physically to put them down. I yeah. love the fact that those are trampolines that physically allow someone to have proximity to their phone mm-hmm. and utilize their phone. I think that is a huge help. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rosie is asking you to share just a bit more about soul trios. Yeah. So soul trios and, and Rosie, I'm not sure if you were on the call earlier, but if you want some resources, you can contact my colleague Jay, J-A-Y at 10th spelled out T-E-N-T-H dot C-A. And he can give you the whole sort of rundown, but um, soul trios um, will typically um, meet once a month 
and they'll block out a couple of hours. And then each person has an opportunity to share something from their lives for around 15 uh, minutes or so. Um, it might be in relation to God. It might be a family or a relationship matter or something that relates to their work. And, and they, they, they share. And um, the, the other members of the trio will not advise or counsel, but they will, like Angela does so well, um, reflect back what they've heard. Mm-hmm. And if they um, have questions that would help the person who's sharing uh, discern what God might be saying to them, uh, they'll ask those questions as well. And there's a chance for folks to pray for each other. And so the agenda is really um, a person's life. That's the starting point. And the other members of the Soul Trio group uh, are there to ask, to listen, to ask questions, and to help the person sharing uh, discern the movements of the Spirit in their life. Sounds so attractive. Okay, one of our participants is asking us to ask a question on their behalf. Uh, they have a two-year-old present. So, <laughs> um, in light of us being a post-Christian era, how does our language change in regards to discipleship and following Jesus when talking to our friends who may have a wall go up at the first sign of Christianity? It's a great question. It is a good question. Yeah, and so... Um, we have something uh, at 10th called 10th Speak. And so when we have a guest speaker, we ask people not to use Christian jargon or mm. code language. And if they have to use a theological term uh, to explain it, uh, we ask people not to bash political parties or other religions. And so if that's of interest to you, uh, you're welcome to email me. Uh, my name is uh, Ken and my email is Kilo Echo November at 10th spelled out T-E-N-T-H dot Charlie Alpha uh, here in Canada. Um, but yeah, I, I, you're obviously immersed, um, not only in uh, the life of a two-year-old, nothing could be more important than that, but obviously with people who aren't religious. And I think that you'll have a sense as to what language to use. Uh, my brother uh, worked as a broadcaster for the CBC, which is the counterpart to the BBC here in Canada. And um, he said the people that are good to interview are people who understand who's in the room. So when they're telling a story at Thanksgiving dinner, um, they understand what Uncle Joe knows and you know what Susie doesn't about a particular context, and they'll tell a story accordingly. Uh, and I think that in this post-Christian era, we de- definitely need to know who's in the room <laughs> and adapt our communication accordingly. And what would be some examples of... Uh, typical theological jargon that you guys are finding fresh words to use to translate. Does any come to mind? Yeah. So uh, in our denomination, the Christian Missionary Alliance, sanctification is a word that's been used a lot historically. So that's meaningless to people. So we'll talk about wholeness and holiness. We won't discard the word holiness. That's important, but explain what it means to be set apart in love, you know, for, for God. Um, some people may disagree with me, but we tend not to self-describe as evangelical, even though historically we hold to evangel- many evangelical beliefs. We're orthodox, mm-hmm. um, but especially here in Canada, in Vancouver, um, people don't understand what that term means, and they associate it largely with Donald Trump now. Uh, someone at the gyms, uh, after some 
uh, Christian scandal broke out. He's not a uh, Christian. He uh, came up to me and said, I- I'm so glad that I'm friends with someone like you who's not an evangelical Christian. <laughs> so, uh, uh, and, and so, in our context, it's probably wise not to use that uh, term publicly. Um, it'd be more insider yeah, language yeah. and outsider, so, you know, depending on the context. So, What about like uh, saved, salvation? Mm-hmm. These are these are standard. We're trying to we're trying to talk about these mysteries, and we're trying to explain that somebody is saved, or somebody has experienced salvation, or that Jesus, you know, Jesus brought salvation. Yeah, never. I, I never those? use those words. Um, again, it's about knowing who's in the room. Don't use the word saved. Don't use the word salvation. Uh, I talk about the Christ. Um, the God who becomes a human being in Christ and absorbs our sin and our shame in himself so that we can be forgiven and freed of these things. Um, mm-hmm. So that's the language I would, that I regularly use. Um, yeah, I think that when you use the word salvation in our context, it's either a cliche for people who've been Christians for a while or yep. people who are new. It just, it's just meaningless. So to them. And there may be contexts where I need to explain that, uh, you know, depending on a text, but that won't, wouldn't be my default jargon. Uh, jargon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we will catch people. So we have, um, we're multi-site. Jar. <laughs> uh, I've got a swear jar here. Um, <laughs> actually, which, Theological see, jargon so, um, swear jar. This is totally like irrelevant, but I use dragon. And so for whatever reason, when I was dictating things, a lot of F-bombs would... <laughs> And I wouldn't always catch them. And so, Shiki, email swear jar. All proceeds go to the Mission Book Fund. All the proceeds <laughs> from my books go to World Vision and to similar missions. But that's um, my point. Uh, oh, so, unlike the Meeting House, we tend to use live communicators. And so, if, if we hear someone at an earlier service use jargon that doesn't, is, is meaningless, they'll be texted right away to make the adjustment for the next service. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's great. I love that. Or to explain, yeah. Yeah, we we have our church actually has a a language document like an Excel mm. spreadsheet. Yeah, don't use these words. Here are some options for you to use instead. Right. So, <laughs> so help. No, that's great. <laughs> yeah, if you could send that to me, Angela, I'd love to <laughs> love to get that from you. So only if you say your email address and code again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we uh, this has been really good, Ken, and I really appreciate just your your candor and um, the, the depth of experience. I can tell that you're not just telling us things that you read in a book. You're telling us things that you are living and have experienced and have transformed your life. And so um, those are gifts that you are giving us. And I just really appreciate your willingness to invite us into that journey with you. And I, I, I sense that many of us want to join you in that journey uh, these days. Thanks, John. It's been a pleasure to talk with you and Angela. And uh, thanks, Matt, for your work setting things up and Zulima, you know, making sure all the technical stuff happens. That's, that's big. So thank you. I can hear uh, these folks. And so that's thanks to you. So Thanks for listening. And hey, don't forget to check in at JesusCollective.com where you can learn more about us, join our mailing list, find info about upcoming online and in-person events, all that good stuff. Or you can find us on social media too. And listening is such an important part of our journey, especially in these early days. So you can feel free to reach out to us with ideas and feedback and suggestions. You can always connect with us by email at connect at JesusCollective.com. We'd love to hear from you.